you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. often thought that the reading of the word is something so important. It's God's own word. You know, the sermon is the best efforts of a fallen and flawed man. But in what you will hear, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 33, the ultimate author of this is the Holy Spirit, God speaking to you through a human servant. So hear now the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. And for conscience' sake, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they might be saved. Let's pause one more moment to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your spirit. We pray that he would work through these words that you inspired in our own lives and in our own day and time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not entirely sure how to test this hypothesis, but for some reason I believe that the zeitgeist, a zeitgeist is the spirit of the age, for some reason I believe that if you want to know what the zeitgeist of the age is, and you can get Disney and Oprah and Eminem to say essentially the same thing, you might be pretty close to the zeitgeist, the the spirit of the age. So I have this here for you, Disney, Oprah, and Eminem, and Unholy Trinity, if there ever was one. All our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them, said Walt Disney. Oprah, the biggest adventure you can take is to live the life of your dreams. Then Eminem, one of your own poets, look, 
If you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? Follow your heart, reach for your dreams, you do you, all sorts of other phrases that could fit in there, sentences, as long as you believe in your own dreams, you can achieve, achieve great success. If someone doesn't support your dreams, find another someone. If a dream is wild and scary, then it is wonderful and worth it. The wildest dreams make the most beautiful realities. To quit dreaming is to quit living. When it comes to dreaming, the words can't, never, and shouldn't may not exist. Commit to your dreams more than you commit to anything else. Syrupy, silly, saccharine, deceit-filled drivel is the way we respond to that sort of thing, and I'm going to encourage you to not jump to that very cynical conclusion, but to instead realize there's just a much better way than this. I mean, even if uh, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey joint tweet after Super Bowl 58, variations of everything I've just read about following your dreams, recognize it for what it is. Self-referential to a toxic extent. Selfish by definition. I don't mean selfish in like, oh, that's so very sinful and selfish. I just mean that each one of those statements cannot be really described as anything other than selfish. You are the object and the subject of each one of those statements. Follow your dreams, right? You have an action, pursue a dream, you do you. And I want you to think about that, because along with following your dreams, uh, one of the zeitgeists of our culture is just a, an infatuation with the idea of love. And at least the Christian conception of love is very radically different than you do you. You be the subject and the object of everything you ever think of. The Christian idea of love involves the other. Sure, there's the love of self, but that, even that is there to motivate you to love someone else. There's otherness involved with love. And to the extent that we only focus on our dreams and make that the end-all, be-all, the chief end, our primary purpose, oddly enough, we're excluding a place for love. You can see a culture going crazy here, just obsessed with pursuing self and realizing how important love is, but being devoted to something that from the outset actually places love outside of it, beyond it, in an impossible-to-reach area. I say all of this because our very first catechism question in the shorter catechism begins that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that is so radically different than pursue your dreams, follow your heart, you do you. And it's profoundly different for two glorious reasons. 
an otherness and a fulfillingness. Well, look at man's chief end, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, or the shorter catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We're going to focus on the otherness of our primary purpose, and then the fulfillingness of our primary purpose. And I'm saying primary purpose because I'm not sure any of us have ever heard somebody say, well, my, my life, my life just lacks chief end. What we do here is my life lacks purpose. I don't have direction. I, I don't have a reason to live. I'm wondering why I'm here. What am I here to do? There's 8 billion people across this globe and who knows how many throughout history. What's my place? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we'll begin by looking at the otherness of that primary purpose. And you can see right there, it's not man, but God. And that really needs to inform everything we do as Christians when we think about being Reformed and Presbyterian and Sola Scriptura and worshipers of God and what that worship looks like. We should be refreshed over and over. It's all about God. It's not about me. My Hebrew professor, it's interesting thing, this is an interesting thing to remember your Hebrew professor for. I remember him for many reasons, but he used to say on occasion, Copernicus called and you're not the center of the universe. And you know, that's the Reformed faith. It's about God's glory. So, uh, Proverbs 25, 27 says this elegantly. It's not good to eat much, it is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Isn't that true? Like, you know, a little bit of glory for us human sinners, that's about all we can handle. Once we set ourselves to seeking our own glory, it's the same thing as just gorging on honey and getting a step, uh, sick stomach from it. It's not glorious to seek one's own glory. It's not man, it's God. And, you know, what is truly glorious is that if we stop and we think about God, the, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's not just... Um, God, but this this Trinity that the Son of God was there in the beginning with God, and that in time He came in the flesh as a person. And there you see more of this otherness of God and all that it includes. And John four thirty four, I think, in some ways these are the most amazing words ever recorded of anybody ever. Jesus says, "My food is to do the will of Him who sent me." and to accomplish his work. More important than where I'm going to get my next bite to eat is God's will for my life. If I have to choose between starving to death and obeying God, it's not even a choice. I don't think twice about it. It's the will of my Father. And he, you know, he proves this in every way, by, by going to the cross itself and 
Um, right before going there, as you know, in John chapter 17, he prays the high priestly prayer. Listen to these words that he begins that prayer with. John 17, 1 through 5, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. See, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of glorifying God, going even to the cross, suffering that anguish upon his body of the cross, the anguish of atoning for our sins, enduring the abandonment and the forsakenness of God himself, thereby glorifying the Father through his own death on the cross. The perfect glorifying of God the Father in heaven. It's fascinating to me, the the Heidelberg Catechism, number one, which so many of us love and very rightly teach to our children, it has this great link with shorter Catechism one in focusing on the otherness of God. And, And just hear the first part of the answer to Heidelberg Catechism number one, just hear how much this affronts our culture and its zeitgeists and all of its voices. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. What an odd answer that is when our entire world is calling out, you are your own, your body, your choice, your life, your decision. It's up to you. You do you. No, 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 no. My only comfort in life and in death is precisely the opposite. I am not my own. And that comes down to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross in my place and suffered punishment and death, thereby glorifying God perfectly coming to me and giving me that righteousness, a perfect life of righteousness, even unto the death of the cross, along with a death that pays for all my sins. The otherness of Christ we can see by going to the Heidelberg Catechism and then considering Westminster Shorter Catechism number one, that our Responsibility is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And think about that. We'll come back to the psalm again, but we use it rightly, frequently, for a call to worship. Psalm 100, we are the, the sheep of his pasture. He made us, not we ourselves. We don't own us. <laughs> we are not our own property. Because he brought us into existence. We are his by creation. 
But then we go further and realize that we are his by salvation. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. By creation and salvation you belong to the Lord. By existence and redemption. Not only by being but by being saved. You are twice owned by God, the other. Which leads you, even as you see it in Jesus Christ, from selfish, which is where we started, the zeitgeist, from selfish to selfless. What a marvel that God would come and humble himself to the point of being selfless and abased, even on the cross, enduring that death, thereby reaching into your life and drawing you along, reminding you of this twice-owned distinction upon you who are made in his image and saved by his grace, All the things we looked at this morning just highlight everything we're talking about tonight. Of course, we glorify God in a special way during corporate worship, but we're called to glorify him in everything. Because we're twice owned by him. So we say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I'm an unprofitable servant. I'm a trophy of his grace, twice owned by God. I didn't create myself. I didn't redeem myself. He's done both of those things for me. My place is to respond by glorifying him, ascribing him worth, singing him praises, rejoicing in him, knowing that he is God, delighting in him, worshiping him. Twice owned. What are you? You're a people of his own possession. You're a people of his own possession by creation and redemption. You're called to live before his face. We heard Romans 12, 1 through 2 this morning, and how that does indeed bear on worship, even corporate worship. But the glorious thing about Romans 12, 1 and 2 is it's about all of life being before God's face, calling upon him, glorifying him in all that you do. During our session meetings, our special session meetings, which are usually about interviewing people for uh, church membership and meeting with them, hearing their Christian testimony and encouraging them to consider the vows and, Lord willing, come into church membership through a public profession of those vows. One fantastic question that the session asks frequently is, why is your chief end to glorify God? Why is your primary purpose to glorify God and to enjoy him? Why isn't your primary purpose to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? Why is the gospel just the good news that you're saved from sins because of what Jesus Christ has done? Why isn't that your primary purpose, your chief end? And, you know, that's a question to lead people along. We don't always expect that somebody has a nice and polished answer to that question. But it's an opportunity to say, don't you see the, the Christian faith begins with 
justification by faith alone. You believe in the Lord God and his substitutionary atonement on Calvary's cross for your sake. You look to Jesus as Savior, and he takes you in as Lord and Savior. But you're not forever standing before the judgment seat. It's where you start. You cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then you go home justified. And the home that you go to belongs to the Lord, even before it belongs to you. And then you begin an eternity of glorifying God and enjoying him. That's why man's chief end isn't to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's so much bigger. It's eternal. It begins now and goes on forever and ever. Here's two great questions to take with you as you consider this. The Lord doesn't say when you die, begin eternal life. He has brought you to life in Jesus Christ, eternal life, life in abundance, according to Jesus' own words. Life forevermore is now in Christ. You look to him, you trust in him. If you haven't done it yet, do it right now. Call him Lord, call him Savior. You don't have to get on the ground and prostrate yourself, but in your heart, cast yourself before the Lord, the other, the one who gives purpose, And take these two questions with you. As you go through life, at any given point, throughout this next week, throughout the rest of your life, just apply the simple question to what you're doing or about to do. Does this glorify God? Is this to God's glory? You know, um, a married man under no circumstances, in no context, can commit adultery to the glory of God. It's impossible. And you could go through the other Ten Commandments, and it's not always quite so straightforward as that. But as you go through life, just think, is this for God's glory? You know, I'm all animated, I'm all energized, I'm I'm revved up. Am I about to do something that glorifies God? Does this glorify God? And then as many of you know even, even more than I do, that so much of life is suffering. That we live in this veil of tears. There's death all around us while we endure death only once. We live our entire lives in the valley of the shadow of death. So hear this great question from J.I. Packer. If you ask, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. Put that to the test. Think about that. You go through life saying, why, why, why? And it's sort of beyond us, even as it was for Job, even after God appeared to Job. But you say, Lord, how can I glorify you in this situation? 
And the Holy Spirit works in your heart, and before you know it, you're often in tears, but also worshiping the Lord. Does it glorify God? How can I glorify God now? The otherness of God. It's not you do you, it's you and God. Descartes was wrong. It's not I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore God. That's it. John Calvin, right? Know yourself, know God. That's how the Institutes begin. That's Reformed theology. You can't know yourself without knowing whose image you bear. The other. But let's move on to the fulfillingness of our primary purpose. Because this is what we would think instinctively, and it's one of the glories of the Reformed faith and how our Lord has configured reality itself, that it's often paradoxical. It's not so straightforward. We would think that by saying, you're not the center of the universe, the other is. You know, God himself in his triunity, eternity, and all of those things, he is what is significant. He's the one to worship. He's the one to glorify. And then we have all this wonderful language in scripture about being a servant, even a slave of the Lord. And you think, you know, how, do, how does that work? Am I just supposed to scrape by my entire life? And it really bowls you over when you see in this that glorifying God is the path to enjoyment forever. I mean this. Like, when was the last time anybody came and said, my primary concern for you and your life is eternal joy. It's so important to me, I consider it your chief end, or at least part of it. And that's what's here. Like, glorify and enjoy God forever. And we'll look at how this comes together um, in a moment. But for now, just consider the scriptures and all of the ways that they present to you the extraordinary through the ordinary. Think about those genealogies that are just sort of bland names to us that don't have stories behind them because those genealogies are the way God has worked out his will here on earth even as it is in heaven and has brought to us none other than Jesus Christ himself. Just ordinary people, saints, believers, God-fearers, those who say, who have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Do with me what you will. Here I am, Lord, send me. Glorifying God in ordinary ways results in the most extraordinary thing imaginable. Human sinners before the face of a holy God with his delight in you. Think about Mary and and Joseph and, and Jesus just going about their lives, responding with obedience to the supernatural call of God in their lives. Not just Mary and Joseph, although, I mean, that's beautiful, poor and, and young and all of those things in a small town. But Jesus, living in a small town, 
fixing people's furniture and learning from Joseph and putting up with sinful brothers and even sinful parents. Ordinary. Glorious ordinary. Ordinary, but extraordinary, because it's before the face of the living God. And God's saying, you know, this, this is how you glorify me. Certainly it's through corporate worship on Sunday morning, private devotions, family devotions, but all of your life can be this spiritual service in which you're saying, am I doing this to God's glory? And how do I do this to God's glory? And he's glorified through your very ordinary life. I can't help but think about uh, Psalm 100 and then a month ago we heard this sermon on Psalm 126. And you just go to either of the Psalms, Psalm 100 or Psalm 126, and among other things, it's just over and over this reality that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is obsessed with your joy. He's all in. He's entirely committed to it. Psalm 126. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with joyful shouting. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro in weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy. Where else do you learn of a divinity who's saying, I, as the almighty creator, redeeming God, want this for your life. I want joy for you. Here's Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, it's appropriate to stop at this point and think about the pleasures of this life, the pleasures of family life, the pleasures of having friends, of best friends, of poetry and literature and ice cream and the creation all around us and popcorn and popsicles and penguins, all of these things that God thought up because you would enjoy it and glorify him by enjoying it. As Calvin said, there isn't a color that isn't meant to bring you joy. That's your God. That's why we're thrilled to worship him together as a people and to call upon his name to glorify him, to ascribe him worth, to call him into our lives as the most significant other. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I wonder if that's what Jesus had in mind when he said, I didn't come to bring you life, but life in abundance, full of presence, the presence and the fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. You see, you bring the most significant other into your purpose. You not only find purpose, which the world does a sad job of offering, you're fulfilled in it. 
You won't be an 80-year-old rock star with all the riches anybody could imagine, all the girlfriends anybody could ever possibly have in a lifetime, singing that you can't get no satisfaction. You'll find fulfillment in glorifying God. Whenever you're confronted with the spirit of the age, you might be right to turn to St. Augustine, who said, among other things, You, O Lord, move us to delight in praising you. For you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. You see what's going on there? Uh, you know, it really takes into account Shorter Catechism, number one, even though that wasn't written till much later. But Augustine is saying the Creator is the Redeemer. He's saying this isn't mere wishful thinking. He's saying this is the most wishful thinking you could ever imagine, and it's designed that way by God. He made you for him. And through sin, you rebelled against him and would go on for eternity in that rebellion. But he hasn't let you do it. He's drawn near to you in Jesus Christ. He takes you for his own and says, you're mine by creation, you're mine by redemption. And now I will satisfy you thoroughly, completely, entirely in this life and forevermore. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be the lens through which we look You would correct erroneous and false thoughts. That you would deliver us from ascribing to you anything less than goodness and perfection and holiness and ability and power. Make us to rejoice in you even as we glorify you and to delight in knowing that we will be with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.